We are in a series talking about building back boulder. And we are looking at an incredible, magnificent time in the history of God's people that uh, we could characterize, we could call it the return. And as we think about the return on this next map, you can see uh, where, where we are and what's happening. And it's a big expanse there. It's a movement of people, a migration, major migration of people, the Jewish people, back from Babylon to Jerusalem. So you have to kind of see it on a map. You can see the routes of two of the different migrations that we're going to be talking about uh, as, as this end finally comes to Babylonian exile. It's a big, big deal. Last weekend, we talked about the miraculous stirring up that happened. Uh, how the, that Cyrus, called Cyrus the Great, uh, was the new Persian ruler over Babylon. And as he uh, came into power, he just looked around and suddenly God got a hold of him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's really, it, it is truly amazing. The last person we would have expected to be central in the movement and response of Jewish people would be this guy, uh, the, the leader of Persia, which today, that's the area that we call Iran. And, uh, and in Ezra 1, it says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me uh, to build him a house in Jerusalem. Wow. I mean, you could think of hundreds of people, or maybe a few people in our world, who's the last person you would think of that would say, You know what? We're going to build a temple to God. And, uh, and they must have been shocked when this happened, when this occurred. Uh, but the Lord was stirring and he stirred up the, the leaders of the people, the leaders of the families. And there was a stirring among them to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem and, and the temple. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But that return is a movement. It required literally movement. Uh, nothing happens. How many of you know nothing happens unless there's some movement? And so that movement had to take place. Uh, and this return, we're going to look at it, uh, came in several waves. And the fascinating thing that we'll look at is that not everyone went. Not everybody went. It, it's a, an amazing part of the story. So we're in Ezra chapter 2, and we get a list of those who first traveled back in the first wave. Uh, and chapter 2 is kind of long. It's 70 verses long. And I'll just reassure you, we're not going to read that whole chapter. Say, thank you, Pastor Jeff. Because you know that, Pastor Jeff, I love to read scripture, and I love to pronounce unpronounceable names and convince you that I know what I'm saying. But there's all these names in here. You should glance at it. You should look at it, uh, because we kind of see the importance of names and numbers. Uh, But I'm going to read the very beginning of this chapter and then the ending of this chapter so we get a picture of what this was about. So we're in Ezra chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our whole attention to the Word of God. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Saraiah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, 
Mizbar, Bigvi, Rahum, and Baana. And then in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 miners of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now let's stand. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these watershed moments in the history of your people. These these moments where everything changes, everything flows in a different direction. All of a sudden, uh, there's a response. And God, we thank you for the challenges in those moments. And we, we pray that this time in history would speak to us and our time in history as individuals and as families and as communities and as as part of this world, God speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you take a little time and and look over uh, that listing, it's truly amazing. Uh, Almost 42,300, and and then there were another 7,000, so about 50,000 people uh, making this journey. And then there were the singers, the choir is separate. Aren't you glad there's a choir, uh, Pastor Mike? A 200-voice choir. Um, And then their horses and their donkeys. And the donkeys, 6,700. I've told you before, in that age, a donkey was like a a Ford F-150. It was the basic. You had to have have a donkey. It was what you had to have to haul things around and do any kind of work. And and then the garments, the priest garments. Uh, Any of you are are seamstress sewer people that make things? Anybody do that anymore? There were these people that were thinking about that, saying, oh, we're going to need some garments for the the new temple. So they began sewing these garments and getting these things ready. So this was a big, big deal. And the return to Jerusalem is going to come in three different waves over 110 years. Uh, The first is in 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel. Uh, uh, We're going to learn more about him today. His other name is Shesh Bazar. and then, uh, and that, that crowd, that first crowd that came, the second return uh, is going to be a number of years later, about 80 years later, and that's under Ezra. And that's, we have the name Ezra identified with the book that we're studying, about 5,000 more. And then the third wave, and that's a lot smaller. The third wave, we don't even know how many, under Nehemiah, they just didn't tell us a number, which means it was probably pretty small, smaller than 5,000. And scholars, as they look and they study the area at the time, um, they tell us that about 80,000 of the exiled Jews stayed behind. 
The word came, you, you can go back. Uh, we're free. We're not in exile anymore. And about 80,000, that's two-thirds of them said, I don't think so. Or, or, or at least not right now. You go on ahead, tell me how it goes. So, I mean, one of the questions I ask is, why did so many not return? And one of the answers is right there in that map. Uh, That's a pretty big distance. It's 900 miles on foot. So let me give you a, a sort of a comparison. If I came in and I was all excited and I said, we have an opportunity to build a place of worship in Washington, D.C., It's going to be so influential. It's going to be amazing. We're going to go, we're going to right there in the seat of, you know, the power of the world. We're going to establish the worship of God. And and won't you come? We're going to get ready to go. There's one little thing. We have to walk. It's about 900 miles from here. It's a four-month journey. And along with that is you couldn't take everything with you on a journey like that. The historian Josephus, he wrote, he said, many remain behind because they weren't willing to give up their possessions. You know, sometimes we possess our possessions and sometimes our possessions possess us. And so there were some who remained in exile because of their possessions. They, They couldn't turn loose of the things they had accumulated in that period of time after 48 years. They, they, had, they had become more successful, more affluent. After 48 years, some of them uh, had become, were too old to make the journey. We would understand that. Some were sick or they were disabled. We would understand that. But some of the Jews probably refused just due to the comforts of Babylon. It reminds us, do you remember on the journey in the desert, uh, how uh, they got out there and after a while, some of them said, we don't really like this. I think we'd like to go back into slavery. Slavery would be better. At least we knew we had food and water. We'd rather go back. And it was one of the the contentions, one of the complaining contentions in the desert. So now nearly two generations had passed and almost three. And so that means that the people who first came out in exile had had children and then grandchildren and maybe even great-great-grandchildren. They you know, the, they got married in their late teens. And so there were a lot of these people that would have said, I don't even know this place. You know, they didn't, they didn't get on Wikipedia and look at pictures. The only thing that they knew was what they had heard from their parents or their grandparents. Oh yeah, that place, Jerusalem. I think grandpa used to talk about that. So there was some of that going on. Many of the Jews had attained status within the the reign of Cyrus. They were working in government. That was a good deal, to work in the government and to to have uh, some protection there. And to say, "Well, well, we want you to pack up everything you can carry and leave that was a hard thing. Four months journey. And we learn later on in in the history of God's people that the Jews who remained in Persia faced tremendous difficulty, even genocide, and we find that in the book of Esther. So this return uh, from exile was very difficult, and it was going to require five different things that I want to lift out of the scripture for us, because I think it very much helps us to make application in our lives today. Those five things are a motivation, a moment, money, manpower, and momentum, and we find all of those in our scripture. If we look once again, uh, the first thing, the return from exile required motivation. And we, see, we saw that in our scripture that we looked at in chapter 1 last week. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses. 
the heads of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. There there was a leadership uh, among the families and among the people. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. There was a stirring among the people. It was very powerful. If you think a third of the people said, yeah, we're going to go. We're going we're gonna to pay what it takes. We're going to do what it takes. We're going to do the work. And it's interesting as a, as a migration, it was not simply to a different locale. Well, let's, let's try a different place. People do that today. They say, let's, we're going to move to a different climate uh, or something like that. It also wasn't uh, for the reasons we see migration today. We, we talk about migration all the time in the news. Two major reasons that people desperately want to come to this country. And one is political freedom. I, I do not want to live in that place where I did not have the ability to, to decide my life, to decide what I think, to decide who I worship. And so I've heard that this place, I have freedom, and I want that freedom. And the second is opportunity, economic opportunity. I want to be in a place where if I work, I can gather, and I can keep, and I can build a life for me and for my children and my grandchildren. And so that's why people come here. Well, none of that was in play. In fact, they were leaving uh, a lot of that behind uh, in Babylon. They had become comfortable there. They were situated in an amazing place. It's called Nippur. It's between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It was very uh, fertile area. It was a great place to be. And, and so they were leaving behind a, a good deal of economic prosperity. So what was motivating them? What was this about? And this stirring was for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And the temple of the Lord. That's what we really don't want to miss. To, to establish a place to worship God Almighty. They had continued to worship. They had continued. In fact, the synagogue developed during this time. The, the study of Torah. We talked about this last week. How, how so much happened while they were in exile in Babylon. Where they realized, if we have Torah, we have everything that we need. We can love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't really have to make those kinds of sacrifices was a lot of of the conclusion of this time. But now there's a movement to come back. Let's establish the temple, establish this place of worship as God had directed. And not everyone was into that. So the big goal was to rebuild this thing that we call a temple. Reoccupy the land, reestablish temple worship, rebuild the towns and the cities. To really understand this whole thing, we have to really understand what the temple is and, and what it meant to the people. So I want to give you just a brief history of the temple, okay? Temple started out as a tent, a tent called a tabernacle. We find it in the book of Exodus chapter 25. It was sort of a, a, mobile, uh, a mobile place of worship. God said, I want to Moses, I want you to build a, a, th- a thing that you'll carry around with you. It was like sort of, uh, you're my kids and let's have an RV, <laughs> right? We're going to travel, because they were going to be traveling for 40 years. I want to be where you are in these travels. So this was the mobile worship place. It was, it was very intricate. It was very uh, elaborate. It was very beautiful in the way that it was built. Uh, it was built in four- 1440 B.C., and, uh, and it, it was the place of worship uh, for, for a long time. But then after uh, David was king and they had established 
uh, Jerusalem and had established the, the capital of, of the Jewish people of Israel, uh, he said, you know what, we should have a permanent place. And so he began to dream about that. And the, the permanent place is what we call the Temple of Solomon. It was built in 968 BC. So you do the math on that about 450 years later. Uh, so the tabernacle was all they had for 450 years. And this was a magnificent temple. Uh, it was called a wonder of the ancient world. People came from all over to see it. Just see this, this amazing thing, this amazing temple. I mean, it would be like in the manner that people go to see the Taj Mahal, these incredible places of, of worship or these shrines that exist. And it was really the dream of David. You could call it the Temple of David. Why is it not called Temple of David? Because he was getting ready to build it, and God said, no, you're not. You don't get to build it. You don't get to build it because you are, you've been a man of violence. There's blood on your hands. And because you've been a man of violence, you are not going to build it, but one of your sons can build it. And so the son that builds it is Solomon. Now, David bought the land. He bought the the property on Mount Moriah. He was king. He could have just seized it, but he said, no, I'm going to pay for it. Uh, The man who owned it actually offered it to him, a Jebusite. He said, said, just take it. You know, you're the king. And he said, no, I'm going to pay for it. And it was on Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham had taken Isaac to be offered, and then uh, Isaac was spared. Uh, and so it's a, it, was, it seemed to be the very place, the place uh, for, this, uh, for this temple to, to sit and to take place. That temple lasted a while, lasted about another 400 years until 586 BC. We talked about this last, last week. And that's the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting that sometimes um, a powerful leader will say, I'm going to show you how great I am by building something. But there were others that said, I'm going to show you how great I am by destroying something. I'm going to destroy something that everyone said is so strong and firm and powerful, it can't be destroyed. And that's what they thought about Solomon's temple. And he destroyed it. And it was a big, big deal uh, for that to be destroyed. Now, it's interesting uh, because there are some who deny that this ever existed. Uh, You know, I guess we would call them temple deniers, the same way there are Holocaust deniers. There are some that say this never existed. There are Palestinian scholars who say there was not uh, this temple, these temples never existed and and were never on this place. Uh, In fact, the Koran attests to both the first and the second temples. but, uh, and there's not very much evidence. There are very few things, but they find more and more. Just last year, um, they found an, an amazing evidence of the protective walls. Here's a picture here that they found from Solomon's temple period. They found very small things. Why, why would they not find much? Because when they get ready to rebuild in our story, they would just gather. That's how, how they did it. They just gathered up the rubble and began working. The next temple is the one that we're studying in this book. And it, we, we would call it Zerubbabel's temple. It's going to be uh, finished in about 1550 BC. Another 70 years goes by. And we would call this the second temple. It's, it's called by everyone the second temple. And um, in fact, it's called the second temple period when you're studying any of this. It was probably gathered up, the rubble was gathered up to to put this together, to gather this. 
And then the second temple was rebuilt again. It was refurbished by Herod in 19 BC, starting in 19 BC. And it was completed in 20 AD. Now think about that. That means that when it was being refurbished and worked on, Jesus was a carpenter and a stonemason in, in Israel. I'm not saying that he did. We don't know that he did. It's possible, though, that Jesus and his father in his teens worked on the temple, on that refurbishing project of the temple. It's very, he probably worked mostly in the north away from this. But it was expanded by Herod to match, uh, better match the Temple of Solomon, to be like the Temple of Solomon, bigger. And so it's much, much bigger, that refurbishing project. Um, Here's what it looks like. We should be able to see it, uh, the Temple of Herod. There we go. And Herod's temple was completed in in about 20. It was expanded. It was much larger. Now, if um, if you went to, and this is called Second Temple as well, about 40 years goes by in that process of the, uh, of the refurbishing. But it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Another one of those where Titus said, I'll show you how powerful I am. I'm going to destroy that temple. That, by the way, is a picture from the model. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you should definitely see the model of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And this is a picture from that uh, of what, what it looked like. If you go to the Temple Mount today, this is what you'll see. You'll see um, another structure there. And if you didn't know, you might say, oh, is that the new temple? That must be the new temple. It's not a new temple. Uh, This is called the Dome of the Rock, and it's a Muslim shrine. It was completed in 691 AD, about 600 years later after the destruction of the temple. And it has nothing to do with Scripture. It's, it's not mentioned, it's not predicted, it's not said to need to be built. It doesn't mark any historical event related to the Muslim faith. Uh, it, there's a claim that uh, because Muhammad had a dream, and in that dream he was on a horse and he ascended into heaven, and he took off from somewhere in Jerusalem that this is where it was. So the spot was claimed uh, after a great victory in, in about 687 uh, A.D. And so uh, it was built really to commemorate the conquest of, of Judaism's capital after the death of Muhammad. And it was a kind of competition, if you remember, of, against Constantinople in the north, which was the new capital of Christianity. So you might ask the question, uh, will there be a third temple on Mount Moriah? Well, many people think that there will be. Um, there's a group called the Temple Institute. And if you go to Jerusalem, you can visit with them. The Temple Institute has a full design. That's the design, uh, the picture of what they have. And there are models that are being built. Uh, there are all the, uh, the various accoutrements of the worship that are being built, that are being prepared. And actually, a third temple, a final temple, is a fulfillment of end-time prophecy, the regathering of the Jewish people and the establishment of the temple. Ezekiel 37, 28 uh, says, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And so that's a, that when we see that happen, we might look at the situation and go, how could that ever happen? Yeah, it would be very difficult. 
But when we see that happen, we know we're, we're very much nearing the end time and we should really, really pay attention. But we get a sense of the motivation for this move. We get a sense for the motivation to come out of exile. Now, that's a lot for us to think about, a lot for us to consider. Uh, so I, I want to move on and say, then there was the moment and there was a moment uh, when this was going to happen in uh, Ezra 1, verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. So there's this invitation, come and, and go up to Jerusalem. The word that's used there in Hebrew is the word aliyah. Does that sound familiar? Aliyah, you will hear it. Any, any Jewish person that migrates to Israel is making Aliyah. Say it with me together. Aliyah. So if somebody says, oh, we're going to move to Israel, you can say, ah, you're making Aliyah. And they'll say, yeah, you know, you understand. And it means just literally to go up. There's a couple reasons for that. If you're in the land and you go to Jerusalem, you always go up. It's the highest place. Geographically, you're going up. But also spiritually, you're ascending, you're going up. You're always, when you, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be going up to Jerusalem. Geographically and spiritually. And, and you might know that when a young person becomes an adult, they grow, go through a, a, a special, special time and ceremony called bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And in that ceremony, after a lot of training, they're invited to come up and read from the Torah. And that is Aliyah. Say it with me again. Aliyah. That's their Aliyah to the Torah. They, they, they go up to the Torah so that they can read from it. So this was a moment in which this move could take place. In this next slide, there's a picture of a Persian sundial. I didn't want to put a clock up there or an hourglass. But there's a moment in time, uh, a doorway that opens of unprecedented opportunity. And that's exactly what had happened uh, in the scriptures that we've been reading. It's a time that won't come again. Sometimes the Bible says, and in the fullness of time. So there's a moment. You know, the Bible says many places, today is the day of salvation. It's a really, really fascinating phrase. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to get saved because you can't get saved tomorrow. Now, tomorrow is going to be today again. It doesn't mean you won't ever have another chance. You can't get saved yesterday. Today, now, is the moment. And so this was a call to that moment, an opening of that window. So, so there's a motivation and then there's a moment. But there was also a need for some resources. There was money for the move, a provision. We began to see that in the verses last week. That all who were about them aided them with silver and gold and goods and beasts and costly wares uh, besides all that was freely offered. It was a journey of 900 miles to, re, to rebuild a city. It was going to re, require some resources And then we heard it in the end of the chapter uh, today. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, they came, they didn't come and just say, oh, well, somebody ought to do this. They they made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. It takes resources. And God provides those resources, but he provides them through people. 
It's why we talk about tithes. It's why we talk about offerings because that's how God provides. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you know God's not short on money? He's not short on money. But he also, uh, he brings that through people. So we participate and we are blessed in that. And, and so according to their ability, they gave to the treasury. So those were some of the things that were happening. The third, uh, or the fourth, was that there was manpower for the move. This was going to take some work. How I many of you know that anything good takes some work? Anything that, that is great is going to take some work. So there are this 42,300 plus the servants, about 50,000 under Zerubbabel. His other name is Sheshbazar. Uh, the 5,000 that would come under Ezra. Uh, and then more that would come under Nehemiah. It takes a lot of people. It also takes leaders. And we hear about the names of those leaders in this passage of Scripture. Zerubbabel is the main leader. He was appointed to be governor of Judah. So he's going to be in charge. Now it's interesting, his name means seed of Babylon. Uh, We're really pretty certain he was born in Babylon. He was not born in Jerusalem. He was not born in Judah. He's not one that went and remembered it all the time. He had only heard about it from his parents and grandparents. And, and so when they, when they came back, you know, uh, the way you remember this is when they came back, there was nothing but rubbable. <laughs> See, you'll never forget it, all right? Zerubbabel. But his, uh, many think that his other name is Sheshbazar. Say that with me. Shesh Bazaar. Because Shesh Bazaar is the treasurer, and it may have been a Babylonian name that went along with him, and we never hear of Shesh Bazaar again. Now, people sometimes ask me, you say, Pastor Jeff, can you give me a suggestion, a really good biblical name for my baby that's just been born? How about Shesh Bazaar? I've never met anyone named Shesh Bazaar. Think about it, though. What would the nickname be? Shesh? Say, hey, Shesh. That's confusing. Or bizarre. Middle school is going to be difficult if, you're, if your name is bizarre. So Shesh Bazaar, Zerubbabel, now you won't forget it. Uh, he was born in Babylon. So he never, he never knew um, any, anything except Babylon. But he, he hears the call and he becomes a great leader. He's in the line of David. He's a grandson of uh, King Jehoiakim. Uh, so he's listed in the ancestry of Jesus, both in Matthew and chapter and, and Luke, uh, those gospels. And, and in, the, um, in the book of Haggai, we have a prophecy that is over him. And, and I'll give that to you in just a minute. But he's, he's called the signet ring at that time. There's also Yeshua. Isn't that a good name for a high priest? Yeshua. He's my high priest. And then Nehemiah is listed, but this Nehemiah is not the same as the one that's going to later be building the walls. So these names and these numbers are very, very important. Uh, Do we have a a scripture in there from Haggai? There we go. On that day, this is a prophecy that was was said over um, Zerubbabel. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's a signet ring? It it gives an impression into wax, and it seals. It was the king's seal. You are going to be the king's seal in all this that I'm doing. 
through the people of Israel. So it's an amazing thing, these leaders and what God was doing. The fifth thing was that there was momentum in all of this. We see it in in the last uh, uh, verse that I read, in verse 70. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants moved. They lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So there's a momentum in this move in coming back to reestablish Israel. And all of those things are so very important. It's fulfillment of of prophecy. We hear it in Amos chapter 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, most interpreters conclude this is about this return, but it's also about the return that started in 1948. And it's also very much about the end times, the time in which we live. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and, and, I, and they will rebuild the ruined cities. It began happening in 1948. And they will not be uprooted again out of the land that I have given to them. So these are very important moments in the history of God's people. So let me ask you a question. I asked last week, have you been in a time of exile? You might say, well, I don't know. I don't think so. I think a lot of the people in Babylon had kind of thought, this isn't so bad. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm in exile. I don't think I need to go back. And, and they, they had grown very, very comfortable in that place, away from the promise, and away from the promised place of God. But, but there was now a time to return. And I would ask that of us. You know, is it a time to return to the place that God is calling us to? You know, this amazing scripture that we look at, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you. He knows the plans. But I have other plans, God. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. But I don't know if that'll be as good as what I have now. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. To come out of any kind of exile requires these things. Motivation, a moment, resources, help from friends, manpower, momentum. All of those things are part of, are part of that move. And I think it's, it's so important for us to stop every once in a while and ponder that. Is there, is there a stirring in my heart to come back, to go back? You see, one of the things that I've realized as I've studied this is that some people have been around the religious part for a very long time, uh, but they have not really returned to God. Salvation is all about the moment. It's about the moment in which God says, now you need to come to me. Repentance in its fundamental meaning means to remember where you're supposed to be and go there. To turn around and go where you are supposed to be. And God reminds us of that. So this might be a time, you know, for you. Maybe you've been around it a lot and it's been really comfortable. But you realize, I need to turn my life over to Jesus. 
That's what I really need to do. You know, I was studying this and I was thinking about it this week uh, a lot. (laughs) And the time that I think of in my own life, in our lives, as exile, I didn't even know, I didn't even think of it that way when I was there. But when we lived in Jacksonville for almost three years, uh, things were constantly changing and, and very, very difficult. And we felt more and more like we didn't fit. And yet there were people around us that were lovely and wonderful and supportive. There were others that were not. And then there was a stirring that, that something was going to happen. And we realized we just ha- we're going to have to listen for that and pray. And then there was a moment. And the moment was when God said, I want you to go to Melbourne. And how you respond in the moment tells and reveals exactly what you really believe about God. Do you really believe in God? That he is God, he knows best, that his plans are the best for you. And I talk to people a good deal who say, God's doing something in my life. God's doing something in my family. God is stirring me towards something that I haven't really thought about in a very long time. We need to be listening for that sort of thing. Then God provides the the other things, the the, uh, the resources and the manpower and the momentum. And, and we sit in the middle of the result of what God had wanted to do uh, back 27 years ago. We could have just stayed. I'm really, really glad that we didn't because it's been an amazing adventure to come to this place. So I want us to pray. I don't know what your prayer will be. It may be a prayer to say, God, I finally get it. I need you and I need to be saved by your grace. It could be, I, I've been in, 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 the, in the place of promise, but I've been away from it for a long time. And it's gotten comfortable, frankly. And he's saying, it's time to come back. It could be that you're part of that exile. You know, I talk to people regularly who say, you know, we, we kind of went away during pandemic and we just never have come back to anything. Some of, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's just the distance. Or it's just becoming comfortable being away. It's time. Listen to what God wants to say to you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you know our hearts. And you know if we have put ourselves into a self-imposed exile. And even though we've heard the, the message of the gospel, we haven't responded and this may be the time we respond. Say, yeah, I, I get it, Jesus. I hear the offer of your grace. And you can pray a prayer like this. Lord, I get it. Uh, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I've heard it so many times, but now I really want to do it. This is the moment. Take me on that journey. Maybe that you've been away in some other manner. You've been distant. Distant from God's people or distant from uh, fellowship, distant from uh, engagement in ministry. And, and you realize now it is the time. I need to come back. Maybe that you've just grown comfortable where you've been. And it's time to turn loose. Maybe even turn loose of some of those possessions. Because you realize that staying in exile is not the answer. Father God, I thank you so much that you stir among your people. We pray that you would give us the motivation and the moment and and the resources 
and the manpower and the momentum to get where you want us to be, that plan that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.